Welcome to Portfolio Pulse, the money podcast for medical professionals and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Stephen Husky, owner of Husky Financial Consulting and Wealth Management. Our goal is to help leaders accumulate wealth and empower them to build the life they deserve. Each week, we interview a purpose-driven leader or medical professional that is building a thriving business with community impact. We ask tough questions, learn the habits they practice to build successful careers, and discover a secret they can pass on to help others build their businesses. It's time to talk money, meaning, and maximum impact. Hello and welcome to Portfolio Pulse, the go-to podcast for medical professionals and entrepreneurs hoping to learn more about achieving financial wellness, accumulating wealth, and building the life they deserve. In today's episode, I would love to introduce you to Ben Decker, Certified Exit Planner and Financial Advisor at Consolidated Planning. Uh, Why don't you give us a little background on yourself, my friend? Sure, Stephen. So I've been doing uh, financial planning, financial advising since about 2005, and I've uh, been with Consolidated Planning since 2012. And during that time, I help a lot of business owners, help them exit their business on their terms. I help families, all you know, young families that are just starting out, also retirees that are getting ready to uh, live off their inc- or live off their assets. Great, man. So. You've been in the business for a while. I'm sure you've heard a lot of, I wouldn't necessarily call them objections, but myths. A lot of myths out there. About financial planning and what we do as a profession. So I think in today's episode, we found it prudent to talk about the different myths that are out there. We have 11 of them we're going to discuss with you today. Let's get started, man. So the very first top financial planning myth debunked is my 401k is all I need for retirement planning. What do you? What are your thoughts on the four hundred one k and its usefulness as a retirement plan? Sure. Well, the four hundred one k. I mean, we'll we'll try to keep this at a minimum. But it was an accident. It really was made for high, highly paid executives in the late seventies. Never really was designed to be what it is today. So, what a lot of people have been doing is shoveling their hard earned assets into four hundred one k plans without really thinking about how it works. And so, there's become this over reliance on four hundred one ks. And what they don't understand is on the back end how they work. It's really attractive on the front, right? Mm-hmm. Stephen, I'm going to give you a match. Uh, I'm going to reduce your tax right away. And I'm going to give you tax deferral on all the growth that occurs. So that's really exciting to a lot of savers. And immediately they just check the box. They don't even think about it. Uh, the problem happens when they're about 65 years old and they start to pull money off of that. And they realize that, wow, 100% of every dollar is taxable at my current tax rate. And that current tax rate is the key. We don't know what it's going to be. It's a big mystery. If you look historically, we're in a pretty low environment. So you could ask yourself the question, hey, could I be uh, deferring into a higher bracket? And that's possibly true. And that could be a little scary. So the benefits of the 401k, obviously, is the the tax deferral, which decreases your taxable income, can save you a little bit of money right now. Right. Um, Also, in most cases, there is an employer match, so it's money that the employer is giving you to put money into it. It's an inc- it's an incentive. Free money to do that. Free money is what they call it. It's yeah, not, that's nothing's free, but you know, <laughs> that's it's free right. to the person <laughs> receiving it. Um, but the issues we see are liquidity issues, and I think there was a number in 2017 where Americans paid uh, a couple billion dollars in early withdrawal penalties. Sure. And that's because the most places that they were saving their money were illiquid assets like a 401k. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, And they don't care at that point. So when you're at dire straits and you need the money and there's a 10% penalty plus tax, you don't really care. You just need the money. Yeah, on the $10,000 withdrawal, 
you're only getting seven. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Probably less than that at the end of the day. And then there's fees, there's diversification issues, there's investment choices. Uh, but what would they do instead of just the 401k? Hmm. Good question. So I think that um, being a great saver, first of all, we'll probably get to one of those in, in our myths, but taxable accounts aren't all that bad either, right? So either a liquid savings account or something that uh, is a taxable account that they can invest in and the money can grow for them, but they can go get it to your point, right? Mm-hmm. If if um, life doesn't go as expected or if another opportunity jumps up. I know, uh, you know, some of our clients, you know, maybe real estate is an opportunity. They could have that money accessible and available to them so they wouldn't have to dip into the 401k and pay the high cost to go get the money. Perfect. Uh, myth number two. I'll be in a lower tax bracket when I retire. Why is that a myth? That, that's a really good one. It, it is a myth. It's sort of this rule of thumb, and it's preached among many advisors and, and many people probably at the water cooler. And I think it's because historically, people that did it and save into a 401k were in a lower tax bracket when they retired. If you think about financial planning, it isn't that old of a concept. It's pretty new. Probably the mid-80s financial planning came around. Well, in the mid-80s, we were in really high brackets, and then we we eventually lowered to where we are today. So historically speaking, since financial planning started, that actually worked out. You started in a high tax bracket, and you ended up in a lower one. But again, if you we don't have any illustrations here on a podcast, but if you looked at the historical federal tax rates, it could be possible that we could be in a higher tax bracket when we retire, Stephen. I don't know. I don't know if you want to say your age. <laughs> But I'm in my early 40s, and it could be possible that my taxes might be higher when I eventually retire 20 years later. Yeah, historically, we've been in a lower tax environment in the past five, six years than we have been in, in probably the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So it's only anticipated that you ask anybody on the street, they think taxes are going to be going up, Yeah. right? And if most of your income in retirement is taxable, that pushes your bracket up. Right. So... Save in other areas, not just the tax-deferred accounts, correct? In most cases. Exactly. And one other point about that, Stephen, if you think about when you retire, like today, you have kids, I have kids. Mm -hmm. They're they're great, but in addition to that, they're also a tax deduction, right? We have 401k contributions are a tax deduction. We have mortgage interest, which is a tax deduction. If we fast-forward 20, 30 years later, what happened to the kids? Well, the kids are out of the house, no longer a tax deduction. Mm-hmm. And the mortgage is probably down to principal, if, if, if not paid off. So that's no longer a tax tool. And 401k contributions are now distributions. So they've become a tax liability. So if we fast forward 20 years later, well, we could be in a higher tax bracket. And to compound the issue, we don't have all that weaponry to bring down our tax bill. Very good point. Uh, myth number three. Financial advisors just invest my money. There is no other value. <laughs> I hear that so often. What are you going to do with my money? Like, hey, I just want to have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So we do so much more, Stephen, right? Yes. We could We could probably spend all day on that one. Oh, yeah. I think a good financial advisor, yeah, they can do that for you. That's right? what you call an investment advisor. Uh, yeah. It's like wealth manager. Right. Is sometimes an investment advisor. And your financial planner can play that role for for sure, right? But I think a good financial planner is really looking at the big picture. They're sort of the macro advisor. Uh, let me explain. There are a lot of micro advisors in our clients' worlds, right? Well, disclaimer, it's not it's not 
the layman's fault that they don't understand our titles. Yeah, because true. we have so many of them, and it's very confusing. <laughs> I don't even know sometimes what my title means. <laughs> yeah, our industry has not done a good job of making it simple for for uh, clients. <laughs> but you know, we we start our lives out of college. We get our first job. We have maybe our HR director is one of our advisors telling us what we can do. We work with a CPA, and that's another advisor. We go buy a house. The real estate agent, they're an advisor. The mortgage broker that gets us a mortgage, they're an advisor. We have an attorney that helps us with legal documents. They're an advisor. And they're all licensed to do so. Yeah, exactly. Um, licensed is a key thing there, isn't it? It sure is. Right. We're not gurus writing books. We're, we're actually licensed to do we're, those We're things. not entertainers or pundits, despite how entertaining this podcast might be. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think what's important is that you have somebody that really takes in all those people and in a sense, puts them all at a table and putting you in the middle as opposed to you having to go and get all these maybe at times conflicting pieces of advice from different people. You need somebody in the middle with you sort of deciphering through all that decision making. I think the real true benefits of a financial advisor is number one is just organization. Yeah. The entire one. financial world giving you comprehensive and consultative advice that's not just predicated on um, rate of return. Right, you know, looking at the entire picture because everybody's situation is unique, uh, and so looking things up online, you know, it's really blanketed advice. But having someone that knows you, your family, your situation, your goals, aspirations, concerns, all that stuff, that's extremely important to to really your personal plan. Yeah, like I don't go to Doctor Oz to figure out what I'm going to do for my health care. Like I, I have a physician that knows me, that has my medical records, that knows my history. And it's going to advise me, and I have a lot of trust in them. And I think you need to look for the same thing in a financial advisor. You know, somebody that you don't go to the gurus, you don't read the books. Of course, it's good to do your own research. Self-education oh, is great. Um, and, and we promote it, right? Uh, and we take in a lot of that stuff ourselves. But you need somebody that's really giving you advice based on knowing who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Agreed. So the value of the advisors are not just to help manage money if we're lucky enough to do that for our clients mm -hmm. um, but we got to continue to show that value and that's by having that relationship talking with them regularly and just being an asset to the team right what is another one let's see number five you know i skipped number four number four i can do all my financial planning myself maybe you, that was a freudian skip there pretty much maybe you wanted to skip that one <laughs> Um, well we talked a little bit about it you know the value that we add as advisors and doing things yourself mm -hmm. you know it's um, it's encouraged if you have the knowledge and you you know you you're able to take in new information and make changes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the issues would be number one is if you're doing it all yourself, how often are you able to find those new ideas? Do you have a second set of eyes or someone to talk with to bounce ideas back and forth to see what would really work well for you? Keeping up with the changes in any legislation or laws, you know, the Secure Act is new and we're all having to change course mm -hmm. with a lot of our planning that we do. The different tax rates are always changing. Yeah. So those are just some examples. What are some reasons why financial planning can be done with an advisor? Well, I, I think if you look at that that sort of myth there is really a cost benefit question. I think a lot of people are cost benefits thinking, well, gosh, why would I hire, I'm using air quotes, a financial advisor when I can do all this stuff myself? And back to my doctor example, like I don't do my own surgery. Right, I use it. I use a physician, a surgeon to do that. I DIY some stuff, like I'll DIY my yard, mm -hmm. right? The stuff that I can't really screw up. 
But I don't DIY my healthcare. I don't DIY my car because I'm going to screw that up, right? And that would be dangerous because mm-hmm. I have kids. I'm driving kids. I don't want to do. I don't want to be my own mechanic. I'm going to hire a professional to do that. So there are certain things in life that you can say, okay, well, I'm going to do this stuff myself. Maybe because you want to, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Or you have the ability to do it or capability to do it. But there are some things in life that really a educated, well-trained, experienced coach is good to have in your corner. As long as you know what you're getting out of it. Right. That's a good point. The most successful people have their own coaches. That's right. Tony right. Robbins probably has his own coach. He, he probably does. And he is one of the most successful coaches that we know of. Um, John Wooten. Roy Williams, yeah. Mike Krzyzewski, all those guys, they learn from other people. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, number five, market returns are more important than saving more money. Yeah, market returns, that's like water cooler talk. Like everybody likes to talk about That's like the measuring stick of are you good at investing? You go to any message boards, there's always this new stock coming up, right? Right. What do you think Wall Street Bets did for, for the Reddit right. generation? You know, What's the latest stock, right? The whole... Um, uh, what was that game GameStop thing that yeah, they went on? Right, that's about. chasing rate of return. Um, there was an actual. You might want to Google this to to confirm, but I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty confident. They did a competition between picking stocks with a with an ape and actual stockbrokers, and the the monkey won. Believe it or not. So the monkey beat stockbrokers on their own game. Right, right, stockbrokers. So, which by the way, full disclosure, we are not stock pickers, are we? We are not. No, we teach people how to discipline and have good behavior and diversify and rebalance and follow the rules of investing. So um, chasing a rate of return just never works. It might work for a season and you might be able to take credit for that. Like lately we've been on a bull run and accounts have gone up. A lot of people like to take credit for that. Well, it's not you, it was the market. The market did it. But the market also, in 2008, nobody wanted to take credit for that, right? When it went down. So I think what you need uh, to understand there is markets go up and go down. We don't know. We don't have any prediction of when. And what you really need to focus on is what you can control because you can't control the market. What you can control is your ability to save money. Your intentions. If the market goes up and you save more money, you're better off. If the market goes down, yet you save more money, you're still better off right? because you saved the money. Exactly. You know, nobody on the golf course talks about their losers. Right. They talk about the winners that they've made. Right. So focusing on the variables you can control versus the ones you cannot. Yeah. It's a greater indicator of success over the long run on average. Right. Right. Myth number six, debt reduction should take precedence above everything else. Oh, yeah. That's a big one, isn't it? Especially for new, like newer folks that are just getting out of college, getting their first job. Now, why, why would people want to take care of debt? And number one, I think it's, it's a huge emotion. It's an emotional thing to have this debt on your back. It can be crippling. It, it can people, be. Right? But I think understanding the, the different types of debt, how they work, how interest is calculated, and what else needs to be focused on in addition to those things. Being a more well-rounded financial individual versus a singularly focused one. Sure. So I think what you need to do first, Stephen, is take a look at the debt. Right? What kind of debt is it? Is it short-term debt with a high interest rate? Those, those are bad, right? Those are really bad, and they can consume up cash flow. They can just take it all and, and just make your life miserable. So there are times where you need to figure out a plan around that. It could be, you know, maybe it's a lifestyle that they can't support, and the credit cards are supporting it. Well, that, that's a behavior issue, and we need to correct that. We need to stop using credit cards. And, boy, we need to figure out a plan to get out of this debt, or we're going to be a servant to Capital One for 
you know, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, so you got to analyze the debt. If it's long-term debt, something that's associated with an asset as well, like a mortgage, as an example, I would even call student loan long-term. Right? Why, why would you call student loan long-term? I guess technically it could be short-term, but I look at it long-term as, as the fact that the duration's long, right? Paying it back is, you know, can happen over 20 years plus. Um, and also, I think it's tied to an asset because if you have a, if, in most cases, if you do it right, you have student loan debt and it got you a degree that gets you a certain profession, that cash flow generated from that profession is going to way outpace the cost of the student loan. So the intangible asset is the education, and the tangible asset is the cash flow that that extra education affords you. Correct. I think if we create a paradigm shift around debt and think about it from a perspective of how much, not not how much do I owe, but what did this leverage of debt afford me? Mm-hmm. The house, no-brainer. It's, mm-hmm. it's an equity. It is... Uh, it's, it's a roof over your head. It's a place to raise a family. Uh, education, you know, mm-hmm. school loans, they help you get that better job. In most cases, even trades. Um, but the short-term debt, you know, right. that's the stuff that it didn't afford you anything that's really made your life better in most cases. You're right. It's usually either to get out in an emergency, right, that we got ourselves into because we didn't have enough cash. Or it's because something's on sale. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, and we so don't need it. What does debt reduction do for you? So debt reduction, if you think about it, you can reduce debt, okay, and that feels good, and and in some cases can be good, but really it just gets you back up to we call it homeostasis, right? To use a medical term, there, you're just coming back up to normal. You're not actually building wealth. If you look at the most wealthy people in the world, they use they leverage debt, uh, and they they go buy assets with it. That's right. Right. So we don't want to go buy stuff with it. We want to buy assets with it. But as, as long as we're using debt in the proper way and we're building wealth, uh, then you're in good shape. The problem is when people just use debt to buy stuff and then they go back into debt in this vicious cycle. So not having enough cash on hand because you weren't a great saver while you paid off debt is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Got it. I know this is all situational. I mean, if you have nothing but credit card debt, absolutely. You know, save a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah, put a lot of money towards the credit card debt because that freed up cash flow will allow you to save a lot more in the long run. And to bring us full circle, I think uh, what we're saying is debt reduction is a good thing. It just needs to be put in the right order. And it's situational. Right. So I think what you need to do first is make sure your worst days are taken care of through being properly protected. And then you need to be able to save money, right? And not just throw it all towards you know, your student loans. You need to save your own money, make sure that you have a, enough wealth built up to handle emergencies, but also to build up wealth for all your goals. And then we can look at paying down debt, right? But you got to do things in the right order. Because if one life event pops up, you are back in debt again. It's your yeah. only option is going back further in debt because you don't have the right liquidity on hand. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we work with a lot of medical professionals and they're first year out of residency, I mean, they're trying to, they're spending a lot of money, right? To go find a new home, to research all these other job offers. And so what happens is they throw all their money at student loans and then all of a sudden, you know, one false step and they're back into debt. And it's not a good thing. Right. Myth number seven, my budget is my financial plan. Mm. So if your budget is your financial plan, let's talk about this. Why do we budget initially? I think if you look at a budget, and usually in the order that it's created, if you go look at any template online, you've got your fixed costs and expenses, mm-hmm. 
You've got any uh, debt that you're paying down. Mm-hmm. You've got any fun things that you want to do. So, you know, don't want to just live in a hole and, and eat re- you know, red beans and rice. Like, you need to go out and socialize. Mm-hmm. So having these things, and at the very end, once all your expenses are done, whatever's left over from that income you brought in is called disposable income. Mm-hmm. And so the reason we budget is to understand how to properly understand how much disposable income we have, but then what do we do with it? There's only two buckets it can go in. Mm-hmm. The first one is uh, more lifestyle. You mm-hmm. know, My lifestyle is going to keep up with that additional disposable income. Or number two, we can save it. Yeah. So people budget to understand their disposable income. I think on a high level that's true. Mm-hmm. So why doesn't it work? I, I think budgeting doesn't work. So I, I'm a father. I'm a husband. We have three children. If you count how many times in a day my cards get swiped, like it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to keep up with that. This is we speak the truth on this podcast, right? Of course. So we're we're dealing with people that uh, spend. The variables of spending are all over the place, right? And it's really really hard to budget because it requires one hundred percent willpower. One hundred percent. So it's kind of like it's the reason that gyms make a lot of money. They, they serve people from January to February to March, and then they don't come back until January of next year, right? And that's willpower. It's because they ran out of willpower. Mm-hmm. And I think budgeting is the same thing. If we, if we run out of willpower, which is finite, uh, there's just going to be bad months, and we're not going to follow it, and then we're going to get off track. So I think in, in the reason it doesn't work is because of that. And in place of that, you need to have rules. You need to have rules that, that like I spoke of before, in order, in other words, you need an order of operations. Like, what do I do first, second, and third with my cash flow? What's the most important? And then what's the second most important, third, fourth, and so on? And once you have that sort of structure that says, hey, this is how I'm going to do it, then you need, uh, or I'm sorry, the why, then you, then you need the how. You need the systems in place. That's where a good financial advisor is going to come in. They're going to build those systems up for you. The reason that people have money in their 401k is they don't think about it. So we need to get the human behavior out of there. And we need to just create systems that, by default, you're going to succeed. Well, you, you read any of David Bach's books like The Latte Factor or Automatic Millionaire. Um, the principles are the same. You know, Make it automatic. Make it systematic. Contribute every month, whatever yep. it is you can do. And that's, that's not willpower. That's mm-hmm. just set up for you. Yep. And so since willpower is finite, I think people need accountability. Yeah. And that is a reason why we are valuable. It's mm-hmm. because we get back to square one every time and say, hey, where are we with this? What do you need from me to help you get there? Let's push this forward because that was one of your goals. Let's do it. I also think budgeting doesn't account for those inefficiencies that you see in cash. Well, if you ask anybody about their budget in November and December, it's wildly different than it is in March and April. That's right. Because they have travel, they have gifts, they have things they want to do for their you office. You throw kids in there? Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, so I think you need to, um, you know, but budgeting's fine, like knowing, but it is a snapshot, isn't it? It's a very yeah. l- limited snapshot. Yeah. It's, it's an outline. Yeah. That's all it is. But then you need a system in place that says, okay, how am I going to succeed and, and take myself out of the equation? And the last thing I'll mention about budgets people budget because they feel they have to and they feel like because they want to know they have money at the end of the month in which to save or put away for their future Mm -hmm. if they prioritized protection and savings over lifestyle Mm -hmm. then all the things you were originally budgeting for have already been taken care of and prioritized so your lifestyle is basically the last place your money is going to go and so you don't necessarily need to budget amazing right yeah 
Like Stephen, if you made a hundred thousand dollars this year and I took twenty and saved it for you, and you didn't know about it, you would have lived off the eighty fine. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have thought about it. Right. You would have had a comfortable life. And I wouldn't have had to budget. Right. Right. I do think having an outline is great. It's actually really simple, isn't it? It's very simple. It's it's not easy. I've written blogs about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's go with number eight. Myth number eight. Tax-deferred investments are better than taxable investments. Why do people think tax-deferred investments are better than taxable investments? Um, well, let's let's use let's look at that term deferred. Um, I think people mistaken that with free, right? So tax-deferred does not mean tax-free. It's kicking the can down the road. It means deferred. I can defer a lot of things in life. Mm-hmm. I can defer going for a run. I could defer it as long as I want to, but I'm not going to get in shape if I keep deferring it. True. And I can defer paying my taxes, uh, but eventually I'm going to have to pay them, and I might pay them in a situation where it's not as favorable as it is today. Do you want to pay your taxes now while you are certain of your tax environment, or mm-hmm. do you want to pay them later when it's up in the air? Yeah. And I don't think there's like one proper answer there. It all depends on the client. Depends, right? Everybody yeah. has a different situation. But taxable investments, um, let's talk about those for a minute. You know, a lot of times um, they're not very taxable. What I mean is it's a mix of investments. So a lot of times you're paying just capital gains tax, which is much lower. And it's just on the gain. Than ordinary income. I don't think we have a, a lot of time in this podcast for that. Maybe that's another podcast topic. Mm-hmm. But it's just on the gain, and it's much lower. So it's not as intimidating as, say, income tax, which is much higher today, 37% versus 15 I'd rather pay the 15 on just the gain. Additionally, will I experience a gain? Right? Eventually I will, but like I'm probably buying and holding over time. So just because I bought Amazon doesn't mean I'm going to sell Amazon. It might be. You don't realize the capital gain until you sell. Until you sell. So the other part is, um, yeah, you will receive maybe dividends and you might receive some income tax off of that. But the taxes aren't daunting. And I paid the tax. Once I paid the tax, I paid the tax. And I can check it off my list. There's a there's a, an old saying, if we want to simplify this, like if you're a farmer, would you rather pay seed on all your crop? Or I'm sorry, would you rather pay tax on all your crop or would you rather just pay tax on the seed? It depends. It depends. <laughs> but think about it, your crop comes in tax-free. Yeah. Right. Pay tax on the seed. Mm-hmm. So I know Ben Franklin talked about one of the wonders of the world being compound interest. Right? That's why tax deferral is... Is that him or Albert Einstein? I think it was both. <laughs> I think both of them did. <laughs> Either way, a smart man once talked <laughs> one, about compound interest. One smart man that's not us. <laughs> um Compound interest is great because the the government is not taxing you on the gain made in your account every single year. It's deferred until you withdraw the funds, correct? Until so, you sell. Until you sell. Right. Now, what comes along and is the shadow of compound interest that most people don't consider? Well, that's what we just talked about last time is that tax. That's compound where tax. Um, I think a good financial advisor slash investment advisor is going to help you with something we call tax harvesting. Compound interest is a miracle, right? I I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. But there's this shadow that you cannot run, which is compounding tax. So the government's on to this sort of miracle, right, that we have, Mm -hmm. which is compound interest. And they're there to collect their goods. So I think what you need is a good defense mechanism in your investment advisor, right, That's that's, uh, sees the big picture, wants to reduce the tax, and can provide really good services around tax harvesting. That's simply put is a way of reducing the tax in a compounding interest environment, right? Where you're doing really well. How do we reduce that tax over time so it's not such a burden? Great points. Uh, Myth number nine, 
Buying term insurance and investing the difference is better than permanent life protection. Oh, this is these are fighting words, aren't they, Stephen, on the internet? Yes, they are. Um, you've got you've got people on wow. either side of the aisle. Oh wow, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I think that we can blame the gurus for creating this fight between. Uh, I think what what was not said in there is there's a different type of life insurance called permanent life insurance, and I'm going to stick to the traditional. Uh, been around since the Great Depression, hundreds of years old, whole life insurance, plain vanilla, right? Let's not talk about the other stuff, which I could start a whole another uh, podcast on that. But if we just stick to those two, those are fighting words, right? So mm-hmm. I like to look at it this way. These are tools. These are financial tools that have been around for a long time. And just because, you know, one does something different than the other one doesn't make the other one bad. It's just they do different things, right? If I have a toolbox... And I have a nail, I need a hammer. If I have a screw, I need a screwdriver. It doesn't make any of them bad. It's just they do different things. But um, by term and invest, the difference was uh, uh, that came about in the 1980s. Um, and the idea was I'm going to buy low-cost term insurance. I'm going to pay a low, low, low premium. And I'm just going to invest the difference. Well, here's what we know is that term insurance is always an expense statistically. 98% of the time, they never pay a death claim. So the insurance company collects premiums for 20, 30 years, which is a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then they never pay a death claim because you're still alive, right? That, that's the good news. The bad news is you just took all that cash flow and gave it to an insurance company for no reason. Um, so the only economic benefit is if you die, and the hope is that you won't, and statistically you won't, right? 98% of the time, they're going to just collect premiums. And then comes the discipline of investing the difference. Most people don't. Well, what's the difference? The term premium, really what they're doing is they're taking a whole life premium versus a term premium. So let's say one's $1,000 a month and one's $100 a month. Take that $900 and invest it. Sure. Now those aren't proper numbers, so don't don't quote me on that. But the difference then should be invested. Well, we know what investments do. We love when they go up. We just hate it when they go down. Right. So sometimes that doesn't work either. So we got to save the money, right, which... Statistically speaking, we can't do that, right? 5%, I think, is the current savings rate of Americans. That's the average. That's right. right. So you're saying you're going to buy term, which economic benefit is only at death, and that's only 2% of the time. Then I'm going to discipline myself to save the difference over 30 years. Every single month. And I'm going to put it into a vehicle that's exposed to the ups and downs of the market. Now, the alternative is whole life insurance, which we can talk about on another podcast. But I think what you need to do is educate yourself. You need an advisor that knows about both of them, which, by the way, we're pro-term. We're pro-whole life. I'm speaking for myself, but I assume you're the same way. Same way. It's just that you need to know the difference. It depends. You have to think about what each tool allows you to do. Mm -hmm. If your strategy calls for um, optimization of cash flow and money and reducing costs, while you're in accumulation, Mm -hmm. but then also whenever you are retired and you're ready to start distributing assets, one of the risks that we face is longevity risk. And so how do we avoid longevity risk? And you do that when you have a permission slip in which to spend down your money. And permission slip can't be in the form of term. It would have expired by that point. That's right. Mm -hmm. So We could spend a long time on that one. I I think we should just have a whole other episode on that. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. Let us know, folks. So uh, last two myths here, number 10. My group benefits are all the insurance I need. Well, it feels good to check a box, doesn't it? It does. And we're done. I think we're all list people here. Yeah. Checking it off. It's like, okay, I cleared one thing. I'm ready to move on to the next. We're done. 
Right. Right. I, I, I got health insurance. I got some life insurance. Uh, I got some dental vision. I got some disability. I think I'm all set. My kids are protected. I'm protected. Great. Mm-hmm. So I think on some of that stuff, like dental and all that, that's good. But if you look at the real risks, like some of the things in there, like life insurance and disability insurance, that can get a little bit dangerous because it's usually not enough from a group level. Um, and if I could just put a spotlight on disability for a second, uh, the question I ask most of my clients when they have it, it's good that they have it and I'm glad they got it, but do they know how it works on the day that they need it? And I usually get a long pause there because they go, I don't know. I think I'm supposed to have it. So I got it. Yeah, I got it. And that's the last day you would ever want to surprise. Right. Right. When you're fully disabled and you no longer have cash flow coming in and your medical bills go up all of a sudden. So cash flow stops. And so like we, what we like to do is stress test that, make sure it's okay. And a lot of times what we find, Stephen, back to the question, which is I think group is enough, is that we need to supplement some of that group. Get the group. It's usually great, right, for the most part, that you have it on all levels, all the group stuff, um, for the most part, right? But make sure you're not overdoing it. So a good financial advisor will look into that. And get the group stuff that's important and then supplement where it's important on things like life insurance and disability insurance. That's been my experience anyway, where you need to supplement. So let's talk about that. Let's use round numbers here and talk a little bit about wealth building potential because this helps fit for life and disability, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say we've got a Mm 35-year-old who's making $100,000 a year Mm -hmm. and they wanna retire at age 65. Mm -hmm. That means they have another 30 years left to work. And they're making 100. They're making 100. Mm So if you do the math on that, what is the accumulation of wealth or the what is the wealth that they will bring into the household over that 30-year period of time? Well, they're making, they have 35 years to do it or 30? They have 30 years to do 30 it. 30 years, 100000 there's $3 million right there. $3 million. Most people weren't earning that amount of money 10 years ago, and they probably expect to be making more than that if they want to keep up with inflation mm-hmm. over in the next 10 years. So if you add an additional annual rate of income increase, mm-hmm. let's just call it extra 3% your income goes up every year. That could be anywhere from 5 to $6 million. Yeah, drastically different. Right. So if you think that your group policy, mm-hmm. life, excuse me, life and disability policies will cover any emergencies, then, then you're great, right? Mm-hmm. But if you understand the context of that, most group policies cover how much of your income once total disability hit? Disability? Um, probably 60%. 60%. So it drastically changed from 100% of your income earned to now only getting 60%. Yeah. What happens if you're not paying for that group benefit, but your employer's paying for that benefit for you? Yeah, this is uh, the last day you would want to pay taxes. You would have to pay taxes. Right. 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 So in most Can cases... Can you imagine that being fully disabled and they go, uh, Uncle Sam has his hand out? Yeah. Awful. He's like it's a, you're at the bread line at, at the soup kitchen. Right. And, you know he takes half before you get it. Right. Amazing. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. So let's say that now you're at a forty percent loss of income, mm-hmm. and now you have to pay an additional twenty percent in tax. You're now making two fifths of what you originally made yesterday. Mm. Right. So what supplemental helps with is cover the gap of what you were not earning that tax is now taken out. Yeah. So that's just something to consider. Well, and for your listeners that have bonus income and stuff like that. That's not covered. That's not even covered. No. Do you know how it works on the day that you need it? It is your salary that they protect, not bonus. Mm-hmm. 
in most cases. Yeah. Uh, life as well. Knowing what human life value is. You know, that's a whole other discussion too. But most group insurance covers you for a few hundred thousand dollars, mm-hmm. where you know it's not even close to that three million dollar mark that we mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah. And the last myth is a fifteen-year mortgage is better than a thirty-year mortgage. Wow. Good one. So um, why do people consider fifteen-year mortgages first off? Yeah, well, this is an idea that's, um, I guess, presented maybe by a mortgage broker. No offense to a mortgage broker. They do great work. Um, But often uh, the mortgage broker is saying simply, you know, hey, look, and they're right, right? The math is right. If you pay, do a 15-year mortgage versus a 30, you're going to save so much more in interest. While that is true, we know life doesn't always work that way. Here's what I love about a 30-year. You can always turn it into a 15. You can. And you control it. If you do a 15, you pay more. And you can never get that money back, right? So if 10 years later, you can't afford the payment or you're not saving enough money, all because you're overfunding your mortgage, then you can't call the bank and say, hey, can we have some of that money back? Yeah, and usually if that's happening, compounding issues come up like credit starts to go down because maybe some mispayments have happened here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if your income has stopped and you know maybe you're on disability, are you able to refinance back out that mortgage term. Mm-hmm. So you're really locking yourself into an irreversible cash flow decision Yeah, from doing a 15-year to a 30. I mean, I'm all for paying less interest. I think we all are. But giving ourselves more options and flexibility, maybe taking that 30-year payment and adding more principal payment to it each month will help once you've established enough of a liquid, liquid account at the bank. Yeah, and you could do this with your clients, Stephen, but if you create a side fund and just say, all right, well, what if I just paid my 30-year payment? But I took that overage and I put it in a side fund. And then, you know, 15 years later, I, then I can decide, well, do I need this for college funding or do I need to pay the house off? And you'll find that goals change, right, by that point. And maybe you do need that money for college funding. Maybe you need it for other things, right? doesn't matter. How many people use home equity lines of credit to fund college education? You know, lots. And it's probably because they put a lot of money into their mortgage, and now they're taking that money right back out. And the bank's happy to pay or charge you <laughs> that interest, right? Yeah. So think about a decision like that from all angles. You yeah, know? comprehensive. Comprehensive decisions. Anything else you want to mention in, rela- in relation to, to myths? Do you think we caught on a bunch? We did. We could probably have another part two. Uh, there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff just – you need a financial advisor in your corner that can really shed light on these and, and allow a different perspective. Right. Uh, it's easy to read an article and then just make up your mind because then it just feels good that you did that. I think you you would want and need uh, an advisor in your corner that's really challenging conventional wisdom and saying, well, hold on. Is that right? Is that the best way to do it? Let's let's validate that, right? And, and using their knowledge and training and experience and then delaying that story to you so you can understand it. Great point. Well, thanks for being on the show, man. Absolutely. This is a lot of good information. I will say, disclaimer, none of what we talked about today is investment advice. Everyone has different situations. And so speak with the professional that you trust. If you don't have someone that you trust, obviously, we would love for you to reach out to us at huskyfinancial.com uh, and, and just give us an opportunity to have a conversation with you. Uh, Thanks for joining us today on the Portfolio Pulse podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us today on Portfolio Pulse. If you found this helpful and think others deserve to hear about us as well, please like, subscribe, and share us across any platform on social media or your podcast platform of choice. That's it for today. Remember to be happy, stay healthy, and tune in next time to remain financially fit.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Michael and Ben are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS. OSJ 6115 Park South Drive, Suite 200, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28210, 704-552-8507. Securities products and advisory services offered through PASS, member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, PASS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Husky Financial Group LLC and CP Planning Group Inc. are not an affiliate or subsidiary of PASS or Guardian. Ben's California Insurance License Number 414-8065. Compliance 2021-130-276 expires 11-23.